Good evening, everybody. Good to be back with y'all. Tonight, we're going to talk about uh, kind awareness and how it applies to the three characteristics or the three marks of existence that the Buddha laid out. And he laid out a lot of different universal truths. And every time I give a talk on one of them, I'm like, no, this is the essence of the teaching because I, I, want, I want to understand how important it is. I'll do the same thing tonight. <laughs> he laid out these three marks of existence that are, have to do with conditioned phenomenon. He laid out impermanence. He laid out the truth of suffering. And he laid out a, something that I would call not-self. How there's no self, some unchanging self that's within us that continues on. I'm going to take a shot at explaining how kind awareness is applied to the first one, impermanence. And we'll go along. Impermanence. Everything is uh, constantly changing. There's nothing without change in the conditioned world. And I've heard these talked about as uh, three gateways or doorways. After three doorways, then where do they lead? They say becoming aware of impermanence leads to non-clinging which, of course, is the precursor to end suffering. So it makes sense that we put some of our focus on impermanence. And seeing impermanence may be even a precursor to the other two that we're going to talk about tonight. It opens up the mind to see suffering and how nothing is self. But I'm going to just focus on impermanence for a minute. So when we think about this thing called impermanence and how everything is constantly in a state of change, I'm not asking us to think about it conceptually, to understand it philosophically. I think what the Buddha is asking us to do is to know it really intimately to really understand it and grasp it in our moment-to-moment awareness. There's a passage in the Bhagavad Gita, and I guess uh, Krishna and Anjuna are hanging out at a pool hall. <laughs> and, you know, it's actually his brother Arjuna. And, you know, Arjuna reads, you know, says to Krishna, he's like, man, you, you've seen it all, bro. What is the craziest shit you've ever seen? So, you know, Krishna, he was a hustler, obviously. And he, he reaches over, he goes, well, to tell you the truth, the craziest thing I've ever seen is how these human beings can be surrounded by old age and death. And on some level, they don't think it's going to happen to them. That's deep, right? And it's true. We're surrounded in every direction by this 
constant cycle of birth and death. Every moment, every breath, every life, everything you can think of has these things. Impermanent, impermanence is the constant, basic, universal truth of change. So what is our relationship to this truth? So how I think kind awareness is applied to this is our, our awareness of it, our attitude toward it, and our response to it. And like I said, I think we're inundated with this impermanence in every moment. And so just think about your life for a minute and how you are with change. How many moments are we in something that is changing? And is there something wrong? Are we in an argument with reality about it? Right? How do we, how do we dance with this constant cycle of death and birth? Or I should say rebirth. And I'm not talking about like some reincarnation trip. I'm talking about moment-to-moment awareness of everything that is arising and passing away. There's thoughts, memories, sensations. All of it is just rising and falling. In your meditation, you might see it a lot, right? where there's like a really beautiful state. And we want to hang on to it so bad, you know, we feel that clinging, that attachment. I'm really getting close to being enlightened. And then we see how when things arise that we don't like, how we want to push them away so, so badly. We just don't want to be with the unpleasant. Even in every breath, right, there's a beginning to it, so there's a, a birth there's the life of that breath, and then there's the death of that breath. Now, we're usually pretty unaware of it, so it's just happening. But as we sit and we look inside, we start seeing more and more. Wow, there is nothing that is not subject to this cycle. Every memory, every back pain, every breath, every thought. Nothing wrong just the nature of the conditioned world. And to accept this with kind awareness, it begins to erode at the very essence of our suffering, which is our clinging and attachment. And Wes said it last night, when things are going great, we don't want to see impermanence. We want things to remain the same. And when we're struggling, we know it's only a matter of time before these things leave us. So we begin to even have some faith that impermanence is hard at work in every moment. Stephen Levine said, whatever prepares you for death enhances life. If we're surrounded by death in every moment, how does that inform us? Ajahn Chah uh, Thai forest monk, pretty much the head of the lineage, one of Jack's teachers. 
they, uh, his students were kind of checking him out one day, and they noticed that he was kind of coveting this cup. You know, he had this drinking cup. And, you know, they were pretty hardcore renunciates. And so they were just asked into it. They were like, yo, what's up with you in that cup, dude? And he was just like, all right, man, well, you know, I really do like this cup. It's beautiful. Like, I like to drink out of it. Look at the way it holds the water. I mean, I dig this cup. But the real reason that I like it so much is that I know it's only a matter of time before somebody bumps it or when they're cleaning it, they drop it and it's going to shatter into a million pieces. So you see, this cup is already broken to me. So isn't it special that we still have this time together? You know, like it's only a matter of time. So it's almost like in The Sopranos when they say, you're already dead to me. (laughs) He had such a clear understanding of impermanence. St. John John of the Cross writes, Tenderly I now touch all things, knowing one day we will part. So we can allow this truth to inform us of the fleeting nature of reality, of every moment, of every life. Because we don't experience life in its entirety, right? We experience it moment to moment. That's the way, you know, life is made up of thousands and thousands of moments. And we have a choice in these moments of what are we going to do with it? What are we going to focus on? How are we going to spend this time, this precious life? For a lot of my life, I focused on uh, what was wrong. That's what I was kind of taught to do, and I had a natural proclivity toward it. I had a critical mind. I always found what was wrong and what I didn't like. And I basically responded with an anger and self-pity of not getting what I wanted. And the more I looked for it, the more I found it. Oddly enough, that didn't lead to happiness. With this practice, we're asking us to receive each moment with kind awareness, with an unconditional friendliness to be intimate with it and see where that leads. I like it so far. Wisdom arises in the clear seeing of impermanence, knowing that whatever arises will also cease. When we see this deeply, we no longer cling, and it's the end of suffering. So in meditation, when we're open When we open ourselves to see what's changing, we also see what's not, what's changeless. So here's the cliff notes. Save it a good time because it ain't going to last. When shit's hard, know that that ain't going to last either. Boom.
the second aspect of these three facts of life about uh, the truth of difficulty, suffering, stress, challenges, pain, the unsatisfactory nature of most things, is also where the Buddha teaches, where he starts, uh, starts all of the teachings with this encouragement, not a philosophy, as Vinny said, um, but as an exploration, something to be experienced directly by us, the beginning of the truths, the four truths, is to know the truth of how difficult life is directly, which goes against much of our human survival instinct, our animalistic craving for uh, avoiding pain and ignoring suffering. And that uh, this practice asks us to do something that's so counter to our natural instincts. And that is to turn directly towards our suffering rather than away from it. Turning towards uh, and acknowledging and accepting and embracing and breaking all form of denial and avoidance. And of course it starts where Vinny's pointing us, uh, living in this world of impermanence and just how difficult it is. How grief is a given and how grief is a form of suffering and that if we're paying attention at all we have to admit that we're all constantly grieving the loss of everything the average ordinary everyday grief of living with the consequences of love and care and connection in an impermanent world where nothing lasts, no connection. Is sustainable. No relationship is unchanging. No experience 
is able to be held on to. It makes life pretty challenging, pretty difficult. And of course, on top of that, we have these bodies, minds that are so sensitive, nervous systems, so sensitive to uh, pleasant and unpleasant feelings, driven by a craving, a survival instinctual craving to avoid pain that's unavoidable. Everything inside of this human organism wants to avoid pain, and it's impossible. Totally and completely futile. <laughs> and everything in this body mind, process, human, animal, survival, instinct, that wants to uh, be able to hold on to pleasure, wants to be, hold, be able to hold on to all of the pleasant experiences, and it's impossible. And so there's a lot of suffering around the inability to keep what we want and the inability to avoid what we don't want. I'm sure you're seeing it directly at the end of this first day of meditation, first full day of your silent retreat. Sitting here, I want to be comfortable. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> well, I want to be peaceful. I, if I could just turn my mind off or at least turn it down a little bit. Good luck. Or for those of you who've been on lots of retreats in the past, if I could just get back to that one meditation period I had on that one retreat back in 1974, then I would be happy. That was a great acid meditation. Personally, I really, really appreciate Buddhism and the Buddha's teaching for uh, finally acknowledging and normalizing how difficult it is. Mm. 
it feels like uh, most of the time before we come to the Dharma, to Buddhism, that there's some level in the world and in our society that uh, uh, sort of if you're not happy, you're doing something wrong. If you're suffering, you must be neurotic. You must be dysfunctional. And finally, somebody, <laughs> this whole tradition this, just lays it out and says, it's not your fault. This is just the human condition. It's difficult. These bodies and minds are out of harmony with impermanence. We're born this way. And the really good news is that uh, through turning towards the truth of difficulty in life, we can then begin to change our relationship to it. And that's the key. That's the whole key. We're not getting rid of pain, ever. We're not getting rid of impermanence. We're not getting rid of grief. We're not getting rid of the inability to keep what we want or get rid of what we don't want. None of those conditions are going to change. They didn't change for the enlightened Buddha. They're not going to change for us. And our only hope is kindness. And a kindness which is situational when it comes to pleasant situations, <laughs> pleasurable phenomena, experiences, relationships, tastes, smells, feelings. When it comes to pleasure, the kind relationship to it is non-attached appreciation of this impermanent moment. Kindness in the form of non-attached appreciation ends the whole extra layer of suffering that we lay on top of the already challenging circumstances that we're born into. But non-attached, non-clinging, letting go, non-attached appreciation doesn't come naturally to us. It takes a lot of work. It is the work that we're doing here on the cushion, in the walking, in the eating, in the yoga, 
the whole of our retreat is a training ground in non-clinging, one moment at a time, one breath at a time, one footstep at a time. And over the days and weeks and months and years of our practice, we begin to, through kindness, change our relationship to pleasure. To not cling so much, to let go more quickly, and therefore not suffer so much. That's half of the equation. <laughs> the other half of the equation, half of the time, if we're lucky, it's 50-50. <laughs> Probably not. Is how we relate to pain. Pain and suffering don't have to be synonymous. Our only hope is a kind relationship to pain and the, the kind response to the unpleasant or painful moments, smells, tastes, feelings, emotions, thoughts, is to meet them uh, with mercy and compassion and forgiveness because we're not getting rid of them we're not getting rid of unpleasantness so our only hope is a radical change in how we relate to unpleasantness And our whole practice here, <laughs> as we sit and walk and eat and do yoga and shower and go to the bathroom and put your shoes on and take your shoes off, is a training in responding with kind, compassionate, merciful awareness to all of the unpleasant moments throughout the day. Mindfulness brings us into contact with what is, but it's not enough. It's not enough to just be mindful of, wow, I'm really suffering. <laughs> I'm so mindful of how much suffering I'm in. The next step is responding to what's causing the suffering, the clinging, the aversion. An active, engaged relationship to each moment. Without mindfulness, there's no hope at all. With mindfulness, we have 
not total control, but we have some influence, some serious influence over how we're going to relate to this painful sensation in your back from sitting still for the last half hour. Or how you're going to relate to this craving for pleasure that you've just become aware that you've been uh, fantasizing about for the last 10 minutes. It gives us the ability to influence our relationship to the truth of suffering and towards an end of suffering. Lastly, uh, I'd just like to say that these hindrances uh, that are referred to as, as part of the difficulties in training the mind and in meditation, uh, the hindrance of craving for pleasure and aversion to pain that I've been speaking of, and also the uh, experience of restlessness and anxiousness and uh, wanting to jump out of your skin and run out of the room and, uh, or the opposite of the drowsiness, the sleepiness, the procrastination and, and laziness that overcome us at times. As well as the uh, mental hindrance of doubt, the thought formation that says, uh, inside of us, I can't do this. Or says, I could do this if it were possible, because I'm a very confident person, but I've decided that the Buddha was wrong, and uh, clearly Noah doesn't know what he's talking about. And the doubt and those thoughts that arise, either doubt in ourselves, our own ability, or doubt in the practice itself, in the path. That all of these hindrances are part of the package. And that we don't need them to go away in order to be happy. You don't have to be free from drowsiness. You don't have to be free from restlessness. You don't have to be free from the natural biological desire for pleasure or the natural biological resistance to pain. You don't even have to be free from doubt. But what is necessary, like in our relationship to pleasure and pain that I was speaking about, is uh, not taking them so personal. Understanding that they're part of the package. Buddha referred to the hindrances, I believe he was referring to the hindrances when he used the term Mara. He was attacked by Mara, by doubts, by cravings, by aversion, violence. A lot of Buddhists like to paint a fantasy picture. The Buddha 
defeated Mara. Kicked his ass. Her ass, whatever. His own mind's ass. And then make this whole story up about like, well, if you're enlightened, then you don't experience that stuff anymore. You're free from doubts. You're free from desire. Personally, I don't buy it. I don't buy it based on uh, my own experience of a sincere meditation practice for the last couple of decades. What I've seen is that my relationship has drastically changed to these hindrances, but that they have not disappeared completely. And I don't buy it based on the Buddha saying that uh, after I defeated Mara under the Bodhi tree and became the enlightened one, Mara never left me. Mara returned over and over throughout the Buddha's enlightened teaching career. (laughs) The whole tour, Mara is the roadie. And what the Buddha talks about is having a wise relationship tomorrow. Saying, I see you clearly for what you are. Just another aspect of this human condition of the mind. Just more doubt. No, no problem when we see it clearly, when we don't take it personally. Just more body craving for something, no problem when you don't identify with it. Just more more body, mind, resisting, no problem when you see it clearly. The Buddha said, I see you, Mara. One of my teachers said, uh, just have a sense of humor about it and uh, kind of, and, and say, craving again, big surprise. Aversion again. Big surprise, of course. Smile at it. Laugh at it. Doubt again. Big surprise. Of course. Why did I think that it would go away forever? These are some of my thoughts about suffering and the end of suffering. That was the good news. What Noah just said about not taking it personally is really at the heart of what the Buddha taught. The third mark of existence 
one being impermanence, one being dukkha or suffering. The third mark is no self. One of the most difficult concepts in Buddhism, realizations in Buddhism, uh, to, to grasp or to understand or to realize. Anatta in the Pali. In the Italian, it's a not a me, it's a not a you. <laughs> you could really think of, of Dharma practice as a, a question of investigating our identity, who we really are. Uh, as some teacher said, no, no self, no problem. And as we practice more and more, we really begin to investigate the phenomena of our lives, the, the experiences of our lives, and put into question who owns them, what is their origin. Is there a a self here that is that has some kind of solidity, some kind of permanence? Is what is this life we're living? The great Zen master Dogen says, uh, "To study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to get to know the self. To get to know the self is to forget the self." And to forget the self is to become one with all things. Also in Zen, they put this question of identity uh, very colorful. They raise the question in a colorful way. They say, who is it that goes in and out of these six sense doors? What was your original face? Who is it that's that's dragging this corpse around? Who are you really, seeker? As you begin to practice, starting with the breath, one of the great revelations is you sit down and you realize that you are not breathing, that breath is happening. And it's been happening before you paid attention to it, and when you stop paying attention to it, it keeps going on. In fact, if you tried to stop breathing, held your breath, you would pass out and breathing would continue. It's like life got into you and wants you to continue to go on. As we investigate this essential mystery, who am I? What is this self? What do we find? I mean, if we we take the quality of impermanence, we realize, of course, that this existence is more like a performance than a thing. It is a a happening, and it is uh, continually changing. And all of the the characters that we think we are are continually changing. You know, they come in and they go out, and there's a satisfied person, and then there's a dissatisfied person, and there's a 
fearful person and that all the, the we, we keep changing continually there's no one you that is permanent that has any kind of solidity or constancy to it this body where did this body come from do you own it did you create it do we create ourselves Mark Twain said, the more you think you create yourself, the more miserable you will be. Did you, do you remember uh, choosing this body to inhabit? You know, a catalog of choices being offered? Would you like eyes in the front and the back? You know, would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? You get a particular Mammalian body, human, biped, mid-sized mammal. That's what you get to be. In what sense is it yourself? This body, uh, the, Buddha, the Buddha laid out his, his plan of uh, having you investigate this question of identity very clearly in the, in the Satipatthana Sutra where there are four foundations of mindfulness. He said, develop this quality of investigation, mindfulness, which is a kind of choiceless, bare attention to what is happening. And then apply this mindfulness to body and breath, to the uh, sensations of pleasant and unpleasant, and how you react to wanting and disliking apply this mindfulness to emotions, mind states, to thoughts, and investigate and ask yourself, what is the cause and condition for this experience? What is its origin? Where did it come from? And after in this investigation, he says, you'll begin to see that you don't own any of this. This is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. He repeats this over and over and over again. This body, I mean, do you own it? The Buddha said, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions, for now it should be felt. If you owned this body, you would be able to Direct it not to get hungry, not to get tired, not to have pain. As Noah said, you can't avoid it. You don't own because you don't own it. It's evolution's body. It's a loner. <laughs> you do, and likewise, you you begin to examine your emotional life. Of course, you don't own your emotions. They're not yours. They're our species emotions. They're mammalian uh, emotions. We inherit them from all the life that came before us. If you owned your emotions, you would be happy all the time, wouldn't you? But here comes fear, here comes doubt, here comes uh, sorrow, here comes anger. We all have the full repertoire. And every time one comes through, I mean, we may have a predominance of one or another. We have a t- we're all kind of born with a temperament, as, as every civilization has known. 
There are, there are temperaments. People are born with particular uh, sets of uh, emotions that are predominant. You know, you're withdrawn or you're aggressive. And, uh, but we get the whole set. There's uh, been so much research recently on the nature of the brain and the nervous system. There's one neuroscientist who said that the default position of the human brain basically is set to be a mixture of anxiety and desire. That's good for survival. You want to be aware of opportunities. You want to be aware of threats. That's, that's how nature made us. But we sit and we watch the anxiety and the desire. We're so identified with it. This is my, my desire and my anxiety. And we get lost in our own story around it. And we think we own it. We think it's defining us. When actually, it's species-wide. It's universal. You don't have to take it personally. I consider that bringing wise and kind attention to our experience, and especially our difficult experience. It is, it is universal. It is perfectly human to feel fear and doubt and sorrow. And everybody's going to have them. And the more you understand that, and the more you put your own experience in, into that mix, into that category, into that condition the freer you will be and the less you will drown in the difficulties. Thoughts. I mean, there's... um, It's such a lesson when you first sit down and really begin to examine your mind and realize that the thoughts go on. You know, there you are. The instruction is just be present with the breath. And there's the mind planning and fantasizing and regretting and without even consulting you. You know, it's, <laughs> it's such a revelation to realize that the mind has a mind of its own and does its own thing. And it's looking, it's trying to look after you. It's trying to take care of you. And and, and in that sense, we can bring affectionate attention to it, saying, yes, you are trying to take care of me, but I'm starting to understand you and how you work, and I'm no longer going to be a slave. Because the mind can be a t- terrible master, but a wonderful, uh, a wonderful uh, slave. <laughs> I'm not going to be a slave to it. Is what, is what you can begin to say to it, you know, that it's, uh, it's not going to rule over me. And a lot of it has to do with seeing ourselves in this new perspective. And it doesn't involve a lot of um, hard questioning or anal- analysis It's really an experiential knowing. As we sit and meditate, we can just arouse the kind of koan or question, where did this come from? Where did this thought come from? Where did this 
feeling come from? This bodily pain, this desire for something. What was its origin? What was its cause? And you really begin to see your experience in a whole new way. Anatta is a is a really interesting concept to deal with and to begin to explore in meditation practice. To really sit down and let experience flow through you. Let your let the human condition move through you without having to take it too personally, without having to say this is I, this is me, this is mine. I think that we're a species that's sort of half asleep and half awake. We're just starting this process of understanding ourselves and understanding our, our mind and how it works. And Really, this is a brand new game. When you look at biological history, you know, it's the Buddha was 2,500 years ago, which is a blink of a blink of an eye in, in, in any kind of evolutionary time. Uh, we're just awakening to this new understanding. So we have to forgive ourselves over and over again. When we walk out, we can't be mindful. You know, we're full of thoughts. We're, we're, we continue to, to lose our place. We aren't built to be mindful all the time. And it, it might take another few thousand generations. You know, I, I sometimes try to imagine that beings in the future will come fully uh, equipped with mindfulness. You know, it'll just be... <laughs> and they'll look back at us as we now look back at the apes, you know, a kind of... Uh, condescendingly, and oh, they had to twist their legs into these awkward positions and try to just get a moment of seeing themselves clearly. And But it really, I think it's really useful to see this as, to, to remember that we are members of a species at a particular moment in evolution, and this is, this is what we get, and it's not, it's not our fault. You are not your fault. That's, that's what I'm, I want to make a t-shirt. That's my favorite line. Uh, when you realize that uh, you don't have a brain, you have three brains. This was discovered by Dr. Paul McLean at the National Institute of Mental Health in the mid-1900s. Uh, that was last century. <laughs> sounds so long ago. Uh, Anyway, one of the great discoveries of the 20th century, he was studying how the brain evolves, uh, how it grows in evolution, and realized that we, it grows in each of us, in the embryo, in the same way it grew in evolution. We first develop a brain stem, the reptilian brain, and then uh, later over that grows the limbic system, the mammalian brain, and over that 
uh, grows the neocortex or neomammalian brain or new human brain. And one brain doesn't override the other brains. That's what's been a, a, a discovery of a lot of research since then. And in fact, uh, there's a lot of speculation that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that we're not so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. <laughs> and more and more they see how our, our conscious awareness and our verbal awareness, our sto- weaving everything that happens to us into a story, comes in very late in the game. And uh, you can begin to see that in meditation and, and realize how you, know, you, you are continually trying to fit your experience into your story and, uh, and your identity. The, the constellation of the experiences you take to be yourself. Anyway, I think partly bringing kind awareness. I really like the fact that you, that you named this retreat kind awareness because you really have to, if you start to understand yourself, you will start to forgive yourself and, and embrace who you are at this moment uh, in time as being a member of uh, the human race and... Um, all of us struggling to awaken and, and try to find a better way to be, just to, you know, to, to try to heal this uh, sort of dysfunctional species we have become and what we're doing to the planet. And, and a lot of it has to, has to do with seeing our aggression and our fear and, and not realizing we don't have to react, we don't have to follow its dictates, that we can see it clearly and choose better, choose in a different way. So, be kind, be kind to yourself. We're all doing the best we, we can. So, uh, Uh, that's the third characteristic, mark of existence, anatta, dukkha, anicca. All deserving of kind awareness. Anything that anybody wants to uh, add to the mix? Well, let's sit for a moment before we break for a walking period.